Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Andrew Waugh, who alongside Anthony Thistleton is a founding director of Waugh Thistleton Architects. Over the past 20 years, the practice has established itself as an international ambassador for engineered timber buildings. In full disclosure, I worked for Wath Thistleton when I moved to London in 2014. I was drawn to the practice's timber obsession and their pragmatic approach to addressing environmental issues in the construction industry. I met with Andrew back in June at his office in Shoreditch. In the interview, we talk about, among other things, Andrew's disenchantment with academia and his immersion in East London's early 90s cultural scene, designing nightclubs and restaurants in Hoxton with Sarah Featherstone before joining forces with Anthony Thistleton. We also talk about the circumstances around the practice's early adoption of timber construction methods and the position WTA finds itself in as timber buildings become increasingly mainstream. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. people probably won't be aware of what it means to have been a young architect in Shoreditch, based in Hoxton Square in the early 90s, <laughs> but uh, I, I was reading an old issue blueprint over the weekend, uh-huh. and there was a little blurb on how you and Sarah um, were able to corner the project manager for a new club called the Blue Note That's right. in Hoxton Square, yeah. and you were able to get the job of uh, renovating this club, which is since become an infamous uh, establishment in the yeah. area um, and was kind of a hallmark of the change of that neighborhood. Yeah, so that must have been around the end of 93, beginning of 94. And I was then living on Hoxton Square above our studio. And there had been a club there called the Base Clef, which had closed down. And, you know, I just kind of always interested, intrigued to see what was going to happen to it. And I saw these two guys walking in so I ran in after them and said, hey, what are you doing? What are you going to do? And they were like kind of suspiciously, you know, well, we're doing nightclub and, you know, we're acid jazz. You've probably heard of us like that. And I was like, no, anyway, <laughs> but sort of, you know, anyway, so I kind of followed them in and kind of was really interested to see what they were going to do and was talking through it. And they didn't really know what they were doing. And which kind of surprised me, you know, because they obviously had some money. They had some money, I think, from a Jamiroquai album that they'd made lots of money from. So they were going to spend that on doing this club up. And I sort of said, well, no, you don't want to do that. You want to get like this. And I, there was kind of, I don't know what it was, like a piece of chalk or stone or something on the, on the ground. And they were saying, no, we're going to do this. And I just kind of started chalking out the bar on the floor and saying, no, you should put the bar here like that. I was like, do you have an architect? <laughs> do you have a designer? And they're like, no, no, we don't need one. I said, well, you should employ me. I'll do it. And uh, so then we met with Sarah and um, eventually persuaded them to give us the job. Although I remember at the time, it was like somebody had done us this massive favor in giving us a job. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, I mean, this is a funny thing through architecture school. You know, there is this sort of, you know, this kind of notion is, is kind of um, instilled within you that, uh, you know, you have, that you're so grateful to do, to do this amazing thing, to be involved in this amazing practice. And so actually the notion of asking anybody for money to pay you for doing it seems kind of slightly ridiculous. Mm. So, I mean, I remember we sat there and uh, we were trying to negotiate our fee and there was a fax machine, which dates the story, there was a fax machine set between us. 
and the CV of another architect was coming out on the, on the, on the paper roll in front of us <laughs> as we were trying to negotiate our fee. Uh, and it was like, it, you know, it's like they couldn't have planned it any better because they're like, well, you know, lots of architects want to do this job kind of thing. So, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, we eventually got it. We eventually persuaded them to do it. Um, we worked with Michael Young, who's the furniture designer, who was a friend of ours from Kingston. And... Um, designed this bar and I mean we designed it around a really simple notion that uh, it's really great to be able to walk across a dance floor but it's a bit embarrassing walking back so we designed the whole club with this idea that you could walk across the dance floor and then go up another staircase at the end then go to the bar then go all the way through that part of the building, down another staircase, and back across the dance floor again. <laughs> so basically, you could kind of like, you could trawl the whole place without ever looking stupid. Like an <laughs> ego circuit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think it became really popular for that. Uh-huh. Um, that and the fact it had the most amazing DJs. And so, uh, you know, we did that, but like on the opening night, I remember the kind of, the contractor was sort of, lost his patience with the client's demands and walked off site on the day of the opening. So Sarah and I were like on our knees plumbing the toilets in. Literally, I remember coming out of the, out of the men's cubicle after having plumbed the cubicle in and I came out and Paul Weller was at the urinal. So it was like that kind of, you know, and there was this idea, I think, of so much ownership over the project that it was, we were so personally involved. And remember Sarah and Michael spraying, we didn't have enough money for the, to do the furniture properly mm-hmm. because they'd given us a set budget and said, right, you know, you have to supply 150 chairs for that budget. And we're like, okay, fine, thank you, you know, for this money. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that we couldn't afford to do that. So Michael said, well, the only thing we can, the only material we can afford is plate steel. So we made these kind of chairs out of plate steel and they were so heavy. <laughs> And they would have been lethal weapons as well. But we sprayed them ourselves because we didn't have the money in the budget mm. for anybody else to spray them. So I guess we kind of all these ridiculous stories about how much ownership and responsibility we felt for making this thing happen. And it seemed like it was such a pivotal project for you. Like this is probably the biggest thing you had done at that point. Oh goodness, yeah. And I wonder, thinking back, what were you anticipating your career to be? How did you see it unfolding after that point? I mean, I'd had a really terrible time at architecture school. I hadn't really, I mean, I'd been very <clears throat> excited and intrigued by architecture school and very kind of, you know, and I'm still animated by, you know, by questions in architecture, you know, around architecture. But I hadn't, I don't know, it hadn't been well received. <laughs> you mean your work at school? Yeah, my work at school. Maybe we could actually cycle back a bit and talk about your experience at Kingston then. Yeah, I had, um, I mean, it was one of those crazy things. I kind of, so I did my degree at Kingston. Um, you know, I started when I was 17. Um, it was really, I didn't know what I was doing. I was, you know, it was kind of far too young to be doing that kind of thing. Much more interested in exploring London than I was in, you know, than I was in sitting in Kingston, you know, which was brilliant. I mean, it was this tiny art school. There were 40 people in my year. And everybody said that that was the most massive year ever. You know, so it was really, I mean, it was a really, I think in many ways, a kind of a really beautiful process, very, you know, very intense, very personal. But actually for me, I just wanted to explore London. And I wanted to kind of, you know, get into the nightclubs and get into the kind of art scene and get into everything else in London. And, and so the architecture school was a sort of, you know, was a kind of, was a side interest, really. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do brilliantly in my degree, but I did okay. And um, then I did a couple of years out. I worked at the British Library for Sandy Wilson, which was fabulous because that was like having a mentor, you know, having somebody who you kind of, for the first time, an architect, which, you know, who I could connect with the history of architecture, who had a kind of this sort of amazing kind of aura around him of kind of, you know, of an intense love and study of architecture, which was really engaging. And I came back really enthused. I, um, I applied to the Royal College, had an interview at the Royal College, got into the Royal College, and then, um, I don't know, it must have been May, June, before 
starting at the Royal College in September. Anyway, so Michael Gowan, who was head of the Royal College at the time, called me back in for a re-interview because mm. he hadn't interviewed me. Um, he called me in for an interview and said, no way, you're not coming into the Royal College. So I didn't have a place. And so it was like... like they rescinded their invitation. Yeah. How did that happen? I don't know. It's kind of very distant memory now, apart from the kind of... I mean, I remember walking out of that, of that interview with a kind of utter feeling of rejection and destitution, like, yeah. what was I going to do? And so I phoned up Kingston and I went back there for my diploma, which always felt like a kind of... <clears throat> always felt like a bit of a, a failure, I suppose. I always felt like I was on a bit of a back foot from that point. But having said that, you know, Sarah Wigglesworth was my tutor and she was really great. Um, I met Anthony, who I've known in business with, who's, you know, obviously a fabulous person. And so, you know, mixed kind of bag around that. But I really didn't enjoy it very much. Mm. I, wanted to, I wanted to be in London. I wanted to be in practice. I wanted to be building things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about building things. And nobody would talk about building things. And in the school, nobody would talk about materials, putting things together. You know, it was much more kind of politically driven conversation, which is, you know, interesting, but it wasn't what made me passionate. And I'm one of those people that if I'm not passionate about something, I don't have an awful lot of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like my, I don't have much self-discipline anyway, so I'm, my passion is what drives me. You know, if I'm not enthusiastic, I can't get up in the morning. It doesn't matter how much I have to do. Mm-hmm. But if, so I have to be enthusiastic. I have to be excited about something. So school is more like a unsavory obligation, something to get through. It definitely in diploma felt like that, yeah. It's, it's weird because I didn't... That must have set up a strange relationship for you right off the bat in terms of, like, understanding how you relate to a capital A architecture yeah. or, like, architectural institutions... Um, yeah, I mean, just the, the way you're describing uh, the early work you did with Sarah Featherstone, uh, and especially the Blue Note mm. um, Club, there's something underground and irreverent about that kind of work. And it is so much based on connections, and it's based on a scene in the city, and it's based on being out there and alive, yeah. and kind of thriving as a, a participant in the culture. Yeah, it was exciting and intense, and kind of, and also we were part of this area of Shoreditch, you know, and and it was the time when kind of, you know, Gary Hume and Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin and Joshua Comston and everybody around that kind of YBA scene was in, was in Shoreditch in Hoxton. And it was a really exciting time. You know, we were involved in, uh, Sarah and I were involved in the fate worse than death. We were kind of you know, um, I don't know what that is. That was so. That was um, <clears throat> so. A guy called Joshua Compton uh, had this gallery on Kurt, on Charlotte Road called Factual Nonsense, and there was a whole kind of art stream that came from that gallery, which really, you know, <clears throat> I think Jay Joplin publicised all the success of all the young British artists at that time through the White Cube, but definitely Joshua was the one that energised them, you know and brought everybody together and was a real kind of, you know, force for art and kind of made everybody feel that they were different, mm-hmm. you know, enabled everybody, encouraged everybody, cajoled everybody. I mean, I remember once I was watching TV in my flat and literally the door broke down, the front door broke down, Joshua stormed in and he shouted at me, what are you bloody doing? You're wasting your fucking life. <laughs> Like this, and then turn around and storm back out. <laughs> I don't think I've really watched TV since then. <laughs> how old were you when this was happening? Oh man, how old was I? Um, I was not crazy young. I was like, so in 93, I was 27, 26, 27. Mm. Yeah. This just sound, it sounds like dizzying, um, being a part of that era in that place, yeah. shortage in the early and mid-90s. And as an architect, I'm still, cause I, I'm still wondering like what it was like for you then in terms of anticipating where things were going to go. Because the trajectory of the practice um, you and Anthony have taken it in uh, is, to me, very different yeah. than what it could have been. Maybe we could talk about that transition now from, from first being um, a young architect 
on the scene working um, in a context of, I guess, rapid gentrification uh, with artists yeah. um, on nightclubs and bars. Yeah. Were you squatting in, um, like, in warehouses? Or? No, we paid rent. Okay. We paid rent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of crazily. You know, I lived on Charlotte Road mm-hmm. um, in the building that's now the Prince of Wales Institute. Mm-hmm. I lived on the top floor there. I had an apartment of about two and a half thousand square feet mm-hmm. with open wooden beams in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I built this little bedroom in the corner for my girlfriend and baby and I. And we lived in this tiny little bedroom in the corner of this massive warehouse mm-hmm. all winter because mm-hmm. um, that was the only place that had any heating. And then all summer we expanded out into this warehouse and had big parties and had people around for dinner all the time. and. <clears throat> which was fantastic I and mean, it was really exciting but it literally was kind of breaking the ice on the toilet in the morning you know it was really so cold in that place and the wind rattled through and then you know from out of nowhere um, the landlord came to see me and said uh, Prince Charles has bought the building and uh, you have to leave in a month mm-hmm. and I had a baby <laughs> I was like what are you okay. talking about and I think that was kind of <clears throat> You know, Joshua just died before. Um, a lot of people had moved out. And that was kind of quite just a shocking end to a very particular time in, in my life and in the kind of in the life of, of Hoxton, Shoreditch probably as well. I never know which one to call it, Hoxton or Shoreditch. Some people, anyway, uh-huh. of kind of like, everybody called it Hoxton then. Um, of, uh, you know, of that kind of period in Hoxton was the end of it. And I was working by that time with Anthony, already started working with Anthony, and we were doing, uh, you know, we were doing at people's uh, apartments, people's loft apartments, and doing restaurants and bars and stuff. And it was becoming a practice. I was, I think, I was enjoying the idea that I could work for myself and that I could survive doing that. I don't think I was enjoying the work per se. I was enjoying the, the idea of practice, you know, the idea of having my own thing, of walking into my own thing. And you have to kind of, I mean, when I, when I finished college, all my friends, and I was at this point living in Whitechapel but had a studio in, in, in Hoxton Square, but all my friends, my flatmate, um, James White, my next door neighbour, was Dinos Chapman, one side, Jake Chapman the other side, Sam Taylor Wood the other side. So they were all in the same year as me, and when we finished college, they started painting, you know? They started making work. So I thought, right, I'm going to just start making work too. I didn't, you know, it didn't occur, it didn't really occur to me that I'd go and get a job. I thought, I thought of myself much more as, I guess in hindsight, much more as one of them who did architecture. Mm-hmm. Does that make any, you know, sort of as an artist that did architecture? I don't want to say that I felt like I was an artist because I've always felt that architecture is very distinct and the practice of architecture is very distinct. But certainly the way I went about, uh, the way I went about my practice was probably more akin to the way in which they were kind of, they were working in art. So I did that. But I think that there were other people who were also beginning at that time, other studios, David Ajay and Will Russell were working around the corner from us. Um... There was uh, <clears throat> Soft Room, um, Project Orange. I mean, lots of interesting young practices doing stuff. Um, but I, I kind of, I didn't have the same kind of aesthetic drive that I felt that they had. And I knew that I didn't. I knew that there was something that they were doing that was interesting to the architecture world and interesting to each other, but that didn't fire me up. Mm. And I found it very difficult to really put my finger on what that was for a long, long time. And so we, you know, I enjoyed doing restaurants and bars because they were fast. Because you could go there afterwards and experience how people use them, which I found fascinating. I don't know what kind of egomaniac that makes me, but to sit in a bar or a restaurant or a cafe, after you've finished it, 
and just sit in the corner and watch how people move through the space. Try and reflect on how you imagined people walking through that space. Um, to see how it performs functionally, I found incredibly, really engaging, really enticing, really exciting. Hmm. You know, so I think that <clears throat> that worked for me in practice. Of, uh, you know, and I think the idea of how you make a practice, how you make a practice financially and how you organise it, also I found really, you know, interesting. Too. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely like an immediacy there that, um, that you're drawn to. Yeah. And coupled with what it sounds like at the time was a real sense of urgency, like what are you doing with your life? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, but what I'm still... What I still want to talk about is like when the office um, settled on this idea that it would become a practice that builds in timber. Yeah. Because that is so central to the identity of the, of the office now. Yeah. Um, it, was it a slow kind of awakening or was there a particular moment? The thing is, it's kind of, I think that the, the moment of awakening happened long before we were conscious of that awakening. I don't know what you mean by that. So they're kind of like, so we were doing it uh -huh. and we were interested and drawn to it before we'd actually worked out that that's what we were interested and drawn to. Okay. You know, I think that there's kind of, there is a myth that, you know, in architectural practice that you know exactly what you're doing when you're doing it. I don't believe that anybody does. Mm -hmm. And certainly for us, you know, we built our first timber building in 2003 and, I mean, I think it's also really important to add that one of the things that excited me in practice was working with other people, you know, was meeting people, interviewing them, bringing them into the practice for years, paying them more than I paid myself, <laughs> you know, but, but just kind of having other people, other minds coming into the practice is really something I've always in, really enjoyed. Um, Paolo, Paolo Cossu, um, it's an Italian architect who worked with us at that point, was a really important influence in the work that we were doing then. And we built this building in 2003 from cross-laminated timber. This um, is Exton Street. Yeah, Exton Street, the 1901 Arts Club. Um, and it was just, I hadn't kind of, we knew that we had to prefabricate in some way because it was a landlocked site, so we had to either take it through the front door or drop it in over the roof. So we knew we were going to have to prefabricate to a degree. And that had, always, that had interested us. You know, we were talking about that in the office. Um, Paolo had seen uh, cross-laminated timber in a magazine somewhere. He suggested that. Um, we, we engaged with that. We, you know, we built a building like that. And I sat in my car on that Saturday afternoon and I watched this thing being dropped into place. You know, millimetre perfect couple of guys with cordless screwdrivers just made a building you know and I thought this is just a perfect process and then walking inside that solid timber box you know the feeling of truth of material of an actual space and an architecture made from a, a tangible product you know made from made from a solid thing really was just, I mean, just overwhelmingly exciting. I mean, I literally kind of, I mean, I remember the day so well. I was just, you know, incredibly excited. And so from that point, we were doing lots of other small projects. It didn't really work anywhere else. I think we built a small house. We did build a small house from CLT, so we learned that. But then in 2007, we got this project for a nine-storey building. And we'd been kind of, we'd been getting planning consents for buildings of that kind of scale for a couple of years. But then, you know, like bad parents, our babies were taken away from us. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's that heartbreaking. Huh. Well, probably that heartbreaking. But yeah. it's just like, you know, so you get planning consent for, some, for something, you know, at a vastly reduced fee, probably. And, uh, and then the client sort of looks kind of, looks slightly patronizingly at you and says, yeah, but you don't really know how to build. You know, and you think, yes, I, I probably do. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, with a clear understanding that you've got nothing to demonstrate that you can. Mm. Anyway, so we got this building in 2007, this project, a nine-story project, and 
working with Matthew Wells, the engineer at Technica, who's really, you know, really brilliant engineer. We conceived of this idea of doing it in timber. Uh, we took that to our client. Um, luckily, the construction director at that client was an architect, and I think we just, we just kind of piqued his interest. Mm. You know, I think that he'd been doing the same thing very well for a long time, and that there was something about what we had proposed was just a little, he just couldn't help himself, you know, be interested by it. So we got this consent, um, you know, we worked really hard to keep this building timber. I mean, it was, it was the hardest I'd ever worked, I think. So just to be clear, you're talking about Murray Grove, I am. which yeah, is sorry. the first high-rise, high-density building in the world, <coughs> to, in the yeah. world to be built completely from CLT panels. Yeah. And this has become uh, a precedent, I think, worldwide for building uh, mid-rise and even tall buildings in timber. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it kind of launched WTA into the limelight as international ambassadors for uh, engineered timber. Yeah, it did. Not that we had any idea of that's what we were doing or that's what it would do. Uh-huh. I mean, what happened was we finished the building um, at the end of 2008 um, and Lehman Brothers happened, the world collapsed, our business fell off a cliff, didn't have anything to do. And then literally within weeks, I was getting phone calls. Um, we were published in the, in the States. I was getting phone calls from uh, timber organizations in the States offering you know, me lecture tours in America. Mm. I'd never talked about my work ever outside of school, you know, outside of a planning meeting. Mm-hmm. So we were being offered these lecture tours. I was kind of off flying around the States talking about my work. Then we, we wrote a book about it in, in London with Carl Heinz and, and Matthew Wells. Uh, Carl Heinz was the, the timber guy. And what happened in that process for me was I had that rare opportunity on these kind of, you know, on these sort of book tours across the States as they were. I had that opportunity to talk about my work and to think about why I had done it. And before I knew what happened, that had cemented itself, poor turn of phrase, but anyway, it cemented <laughs> itself into a, into a notion about architecture. I think something that had, all, that had begun to prey upon me in, in architecture was that one of the things that, that the kind of my diploma with Sarah Wigglesworth had taught me or really drummed into me was this kind of like that there is, that there is no separation between architecture and politics, that architecture is a political science in many ways. And I had always really, I believed that, you know, and I, and I still do. I still think that the action of an architect is a political action, mm. as well as lots of other things. And I think that we have climate change. Humanity has this massive issue, bigger than anything else that's ever faced us, you know, as humankind. And the fact that the vast majority of architects are not discussing it, confronting it, engaging with it, to me seems insane. Absolutely. It seems to me that, you know, that this could be the end of, of the idea of architects unless we engage with this situation. interest in timber from the wider industry and it sounds like mm. it feels like to me within the next five years every architect will have built a building in CLT. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and so as early adopters of the material yeah. uh, where does that put the practice? I mean what, how does your identity uh, as a timber focused office 
change or adapt to the mainstreaming of timber? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that's a question which I have some kind of personal conflict over, I have to say. Uh-huh. You know, in, in, because um, I'm evangelical about it. Yes. It's, <laughs> as you know, um, it's not... You know, some people say, oh, we could use concrete, we could use steel, or we could use timber. I don't believe that that should be the case. I don't believe that. I believe that, as humanity, every decision that we make in every situation needs to be a decision that's informed by our impact on the environment. But it, and I'm not good at that myself. Yeah. You know, I, I, in many aspects of my life, mm-hmm. I'm not good. But I hope that I'm part of a solution rather than part of a problem. You know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of on the other side of the problem, if you like. Mm-hmm. But, so I'm evangelical about everybody doing this. But at the same time, there's a kind of, there's a possessiveness which you naturally feel about something which was your idea and everybody else doing. You know, I wonder how Richard Rogers would feel if everybody painted their lifts yellow and their staircases red and mm. their louvers green. You know, it's kind of like, how would, how would you begin to feel about that? And, you know, I, I, ha- I confess completely. I mean, there's a book that Herman Kaufman just wrote on, you know, he's a great hero of mine. And he just wrote a book on tall timber buildings, and Murray Grove isn't in it. <laughs> so, just to, so Herman Kaufman is an Austrian architect yeah. who um, makes beautiful timber buildings yeah. and has done for the past thirty years. Thirty years, yeah, and definitely kind of spawned, I think, an architectural school in Vorarlberg and the the east of Switzerland. Mm. And this is kind of an idol of yours in some way. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's another funny kind of coincidence, well, not coincidence, whatever, another funny kind of angle to this whole thing is that in 1997, I split up with my girlfriend, who was Swiss. She moved back to Geneva with my daughter, and I got a flat in Geneva. Mm. Um, I got a flat. That sounds so grand. I rented an attic space from the parents of the guy that ran the coffee shop on Curtin Road, who happened to live in Geneva, God bless them. And so I was 10 days in London and four days in Switzerland for about three years. And so I did that religiously. You know, I was 10 days working, four days holiday, 10 days working, four days holiday with my daughter. Hmm. And because I didn't want to stay in Geneva and bump into my in-laws or my ex-in-laws or anything, I just spent the whole time dragging my small daughter across Switzerland to look at buildings. So I went to see all those buildings. I went by train to Vorarlberg with Jo when she was three and took her to see all the Hermann Kaufmann buildings. I didn't have a driving license, you know, so we used to kind of get to stations and I'd rent a bicycle, (laughs) put her on the back of the bike, cycle out to these kind of like, you know, small small social housing developments in the, you know, in the back end of Austria, uh-huh. <laughs> take lots of photographs of them and then head back to Geneva, mm. you know, and read Harry Potter on the train or something. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, so I had this interest and this fascination with a modernism that was utilising natural materials already. You know, and when we, in 2003, when we started to begin to understand the architecture that we were interested in. I began to understand the architecture that fascinated me. It was really influenced by those kind of long bike rides through, mm-hmm. through eastern Switzerland. When I think of Kaufman's buildings, though, they look like buildings that are outwardly evangelical about timber. Yeah. And that's another question I had, that the practice... Um, I guess like the rhetoric is yeah. very timber centric, yeah. and there are some talking points that um, are so recognizable now around the cleanliness of timber, yeah. the efficiency and the speed, yeah. the quietness, um, um, carbon sequestration, yeah. etc. Yeah. But I th- I think that there's a tension there between the ambitions of the practice or yeah. like the identity of the practice as a timber practice. Yeah. And the identity of the buildings themselves. Yeah. Which... It's fascinating, isn't it? They, 
I mean, do you know some, what it is? Do you know? I can tell you. I know exactly what your question is. Okay, I, I just know. want to finish it so yeah. that people listening yeah. will understand that because I don't know if it, like I've made it clear yet, but like some of the buildings look like they're timber buildings. Yeah. And this is, this is definitely, this question itself is kind of cliche, but I think still worth yeah. uh, mulling over that, I mean, most of the promotional imagery around the practice shows the buildings under construction. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Because once they're finished, um, yeah. the timber is all hidden away. Yeah. The buildings don't look like they are enthusiastic about timber. Instead, they're yeah. quite polite, <clears throat> usually brick-clad. Yeah. And um, yeah. if you look at a typical WTA building, mm. a housing building, done for a conventional client, yeah. um, you wouldn't know it was a timber building. No. Um, and so what do you make of that? I know there's so many reasons why maybe we can start to enumerate. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really, um, <clears throat> the difference between what we've done in, in terms of our practice in timber and what most other architects have done in the rest of the, you know, outside of the UK and some in the UK, but outside of the UK generally in terms of their practice in timber is that we have had to prove the case for timber um, around cost and program. And that was why we were able to build the buildings in timber. So the vast majority of the people that we have built timber buildings for have not been interested in the fact that they were in timber. And in fact, in Murray Grove, we were strictly instructed by our client not to tell anybody that the building was made of timber. Hmm. You know? So... Um, and, you know, you could sort of, we could have taken a, a completely different approach at that point. We could have said, well, okay, if building, if the material is not going to be celebrated, the thing that we're really interested in is not going to be celebrated, then fine, we'll just kind of look at something else. But I actually, my view was, and I, that kind of talking about it helped un me understand that, was that, you know, it was about the highest context factor in that situation was that we, that we demonstrate that, that timber is a viable alternative to concrete and steel. And whether or not it is shown as a timber building is secondary. By proving the architecture beyond beauty, we are able to really establish this material as, a, as the future of construction, mm. rather than just as something that's quite pretty. Mm. Does that make any does that, that makes answer? A, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think it, to me it seems like it's more about establishing the material as a viable mainstream yeah. alternate to concrete and steel. That's my, that was my job. I felt like that was my task to mm -hmm. do that. But then the, the concern must be now that given that that's becoming, um, that's becoming an, accept, an accepted notion, mm. that's becoming received wisdom now. Yeah. Um, there must be some sense of like, what now or what next? I know that what interests me is research and change and development and, um, and every time working into the issue that I'm thinking about, working into the problem that I'm confronting. So the work that we're doing now, you know, we've been doing some research work with Cambridge University, we're looking at um, laminating in um, Kevlar and carbon fiber and building building joints out of out of cross laminated timber out of using softwoods and hardwoods and talking to people about what different kinds of glues they make so we really understand the material that we're working with and you know it's it's inevitable that Foster's or Acom or you know, Perkins and Will or some other mammoth practice will at some point in the very near future be building more buildings than us in timber, have more experience than us in timber. So that's inevitable. Um, so I think that one of the, we're at a bit of a crossroads as a practice as you, you know, as you brilliantly identified, <laughs> which is that where do we decide to go? Because lots of people are now saying to us, will you be part of our team, you know, collaborating on this building? And you can be the timber guys and we'll be the designers, mm. you know. And in some ways, I want to do that. In some ways, 
and kind of intrigued by doing that. And we're doing that with Sugar Ruban um, at the moment, which is really, you know, that's really exciting. And we did it with Martin Francis and, Vits, uh, and Vitsu, on Vitsu, and that was, that was exciting too. I think that, but it's not what I do. It's not the practice that I set out to create was not to be, you know, the materials guy. It's so interesting because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm thinking back to the anecdote at the beginning about um, designing this bar or this uh, nightclub in Hoxton yeah. and how, like, you, you're very keenly aware of people's sense of pride yeah. <laughs> in designing a place like that where yeah. there's, you're kind of safeguarding people against <laughs> um, embarrassment, and yeah. you're also trying to um, allow people to strut. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> architects like to strut, generally. Yeah, yeah true. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, who you feel like your audience is now um, as, a, as, a, as a practice. Yeah. Because um, a lot of architects make buildings for other architects to appreciate. Yeah, hell of a lot of them. A lot of architecture <laughs> is for architecture's sake. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like this is the kind of practice that participates in that. No, it isn't. And yet at the same time, it sounds like you don't want to take the route of becoming a consultant um, no. and allow another architect to claim the glory. No, absolutely. <laughs> but there's you know, a... No, I just want to be a really good architect. I mean, that sounds naive thing to say, but I just, you know, I want to be good at what I do. And I want to um, make good buildings, you know, good, simple buildings that reflect the time that we live in, the context of the building, you know, politically, socially, physically, and make buildings that people enjoy being in. I mean, it's not a, it's a, it's a complex task that's simply described, you know, and no, I don't really, you know, I went through architecture school, you know, failing. So I think the idea that I was, you know, that I was gonna make buildings for other architects that notion kind of disappeared a long, long time ago, you know, as, uh, you know, as my popularity in architecture school was purely social, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I, but it is, a, it's an interesting crossroads in our practice at the moment. It's an interesting decision that we're making. I, I do like the idea of collaboration, but so I have to work out how that's going to work for us as a practice. Uh -huh. I like the idea of collaboration because I also... I don't like the idea of mammoth practices. I don't think they work well. Mm. And a big businesses doing architecture. I also, I don't like the way in which architecture has become about architectural stars. And so I think that collaborating with other architects is a good way of breaking that kind of um, myth down. You know. There are just a few more questions that are kind of out of sync with yeah. this line of, okay. of conversation that I want to ask anyways. Um, one is um, being such a strong proponent of building in timber and kind of raising the alarm of global warming and um, making available to a wider uh, group of designers and architects the possibility of building in a more sustainable material. Yeah. What I think a lot of people would expect of the architect in that position is that they're somehow embodying that role, uh, even in, in their personal life or something. <laughs> and so, like, the image people probably have is of this kind of... Uh, hippie. hippie. Not hippie, <laughs> but, like, like a, maybe, I don't know, a vegan yeah. um, bike enthusiast. Yeah. When, in fact, I, I don't know where I read this, but I know you like red meat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and fast cars. And fast cars. <laughs> and so how do you square that? How do, do you, you know what that? I kind of, well, I tell you how I square it. I kind of, for me, the most important thing about, one of the, one of the primary things about confronting um, issues around climate change is that it's down to all of us, every single last one of us. And every single last one of us is going to be fairly terrible at it. You know, the idea that we confront it, you know, through a kind of hair shirt type mentality you know, is never going to work. What is the hair shirt? Hair shirt, you know, kind of, that it's going to be painful, that it's going to be horrific, that it's kind of like, I think that this is an exciting new opportunity. It's going to be a new age. You know, I think that the age, of, the age of climate change, like engaging with these things, confronting these problems, is as exciting and will 
will give rise to the levels of kind of creativity that happened in in the 1920s and 1930s around the kind of modernist ideals. I think that that will again happen in architecture because of climate change. And that's what we're going to see. So I think we just need to run at it and confront it. No, the thing is, I'm. the other thing I must say is that when I was at college, people were interested in sustainability, but they were generally the ones who weren't very good at design. You know, it was a thing. Mm-hmm. And they went off and they did bird watching centers, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's been really important to me in my practice that we remain a mainstream, a mainstream practice. You know, we work for developers and housing associations. And that where we place our practice is alongside every other mainstream practice. But how we perform our practice is completely different. Do, 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 does that make any sense? I, th- I think so. I feel like the first part... Um, is almost more a reflex for you now in terms of how you answer these questions. Yeah. Because... <laughs> Very astute. <laughs> because um, maybe people ask you that question a lot. And also... I've, they do ask me that question a lot. And I haven't quite formed... You know, I haven't... And maybe I hope that it came across as... I mean, it is... I hope it didn't come across as untruthful in, or, you know, in the way I answered it. It is a question I've answered a lot. I haven't... I'm asked a lot. I haven't perhaps kind of properly, I don't properly understand the answer yet, Mm. would be the most honest way of saying it. I know that this is something that confronts us all. We all have to deal with it. Um, I, you know, I don't actually eat red meat, (laughs) but I I do have a thing about cars, Uh (laughs) but I just got an electric one. You know, I think these are kind of like, these are... Maybe that was my fault for even asking the question then, because I feel like there's a, I think maybe a... As a public, we want some kind of irony. Yeah. And we want some kind of contradiction. Yeah. And maybe that contradiction isn't as pronounced as I thought it was. I don't... You know, <laughs> there, is a, there is definitely a contradiction. There is definitely a contradiction. In terms of lifestyle, the lifestyle one leads and the values one espouses. Yeah, absolutely. Because the value that one espouses are aspirational. You know, I constantly aspire to values slightly greater than the ones I'm actually able to perform to. That's mm-hmm. what drives me, mm-hmm. you know? So I, you know, I know that I should do lots of things in a different way. I know I shouldn't catch as many Ubers. I should cycle more. I know that, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm getting better at it, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like we're, you know, I feel like we're all going through that. You know, we're all, all of us to different scales going through that. You know, we're all getting better at recycling. We're all thinking about not using straws, not having plastic tops on our, Mm. takeaway coffee cups you know all those little things that we can do a little bit better and if humanity as a whole engages with that then you know then we'll be all right so just one more question and um it has to do with the future of the practice and where you anticipate things going um again acknowledging the fact that um the interests now of the practice are mainstream in some ways you have succeeded in that initial um, aspiration to popularize and, uh, um, and promote the material that has now become accepted. Um, where do you see things going for WTA? We've only just started in terms of, you know, in terms of popularizing this material. I mean, you know, we're just scratching the surface, literally. I mean, it just, you know, we need to be influencing government policy. We need to be properly influencing the world of architecture. You know, it's still really peripheral. You know, there may be 40, 50 buildings a year in the UK made from cross-animated timber or engineered timber. Or, you know, there we need to have embodied carbon within government policy. We're just beginning. I mean, there's so much to do in this. Um, in terms, I think, of the mainstream practice that, that we've been involved with, that we are involved in, those doors are opening more easily for us, which is, which is exciting as a practice, but that won't stop us from pushing the boundaries. Thanks so much, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by Walter Scott and Junior85. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Andrew Waugh, and special thanks this week to Dave Lomax. And, as always, thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.